Let's turn uh, in a copy of God's Word uh, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 2. We're looking this morning at verses 26 through 31. This will be our last Sunday in uh, Genesis 1. Next week we'll talk about the seventh day of creation. We'll talk about the Sabbath. Um, All right. Uh, If you are able, if you'll please stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. It's trustworthy because God wrote it. Then God said, in verse 26, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and over every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life... I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us as we come to the preaching of your word, that we would leave this place having been changed by it through the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever heard the word Viceroy? Now, Star Wars fans have, right? There's, a, there's some Viceroys in Star Wars. Uh, but a Viceroy, uh, outside of Star Wars, is an old word, and it refers to a royal representative of the king. Did you know that you are a Viceroy? You might not even known that word before you came in here. But you are one. You're a Viceroy. Uh, it's someone that is... It's, it's more important and more, has more authority than a governor. It's the direct representative of the king. There was once a viceroy of India, over India, of uh, the British crown. And he was one that when he showed up, he represented the king. This then is what God has done to, for humanity. That humanity, mankind... Those made in His image are God's viceroys, His royal governors upon the earth. While conditions may have changed a lot since Adam and Eve led their rebellion against their and our king, God still has entrusted to us a special role and a special authority in creation. Have you ever noticed that people treat things they rent differently than things that they own. How about you? Have you ever rented a car? Uh, I love renting a car. Um, I rented a a Dodge Charger uh, a while back, and uh, and you know, I drove it very safely. I really did. Uh, I drove it like I would not drive my car, right? You treat things differently when you rent them than when you own them. Do you remember when you used to rent apartments and you would pull the nail holes out of the uh, out of the wall? Did you ever do the toothpaste trick? 
Do you know this trick? You get white toothpaste and you cover the hole and then you skedaddle before they realize that you left a hole there. Uh, you know, when we think about our role in creation, our role in the world, we're kind of in between ownership and rental. Now, we, we don't really own the world, right? Who owns the world? God does. But we're not just renters. Listen to the tension between these two verses. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. To whom does everything belong? God, right? Real clear. Okay, now take this one. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the children of man. Now that's interesting. To whom does the earth belong? It belongs to God. To whom does the earth belong? It belongs to man. That's because God has set up mankind as His royal representatives on, on earth. He has called us to serve Him by being good stewards of all that He has placed us over. And just like the Viceroy of India would be called back to give explanation of how He had managed things, one day we too will give an answer to our King of how we have done. All right, so let's look at verse 26. This is where we get this language from. Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that lives on earth. God is, we're going to talk about the tasks that God has given to us as viceroys, as royal ambassadors, as governors upon this earth. But notice that it's important that God gives us the ability to carry out that which He calls us to. Um, during the Second World War, America did not begin the war with a torpedo that actually worked. Did you know this? We didn't have a good, reliable torpedo until summer of 1943. So December 7th till the summer of 1943, it was basically even odds that if a submarine shot a torpedo at an enemy ship, that it would either explode or hit the side of the ship, and instead of the ship sinking, the torpedo would. It wasn't until 1943 that we had a good torpedo. That our submarines were given a task, but were not given the ability to carry it out. The good news is that when God gives us a task to do, He also equips us for it. We see that spiritually as we rely upon Him for strength, for the task that He's called us to every day. But also when it comes to mankind, He has called mankind to be royal governors, to be viceroys over all creation. And therefore, in order to make that happen, He gave us the ability. He made us in His image, which means we have souls, which means we are morally responsible to Him. It means that we're personalities, that we have creative abilities. And now that we have those abilities, we are to have dominion. To have dominion. What, what does that mean? Well, you know, as Americans, we get a little nervous about authority, don't we? We don't like the idea of anybody being an authority over us. Um, but God has created within His creation uh, authority structures. Right? Just like a monarchy would rule a, a kingdom, our Savior, our King, that He is ruling over us. 
And Christ has overruled the darkness, and the darkness is being pushed back until the king's final return. And as humans, as those made in his image, we have a part in his kingdom and living here on earth. There's structure in the home and in the family that though husbands and wives are equal, husbands are an authority over the family. We see it in society when we have people who are entrusted with the authority needed for the welfare and protection of the people under them or, or think about whom God values the most, animals or humans. Now, of course, God values human life over animal life because God has made human life in His image. And that might not sound terribly countercultural in rural Alabama, right, where we just celebrated the successful conclusion of deer season. Uh, But that's a big deal, this idea that humans are more valuable uh, than animals. And God has given to humanity authority and dominion over all creation, including the birds, including the deer, including the fish, especially the catfish at David's catfish. That's the best kind that we have authority over. Uh, Luke 12, 48 tells us, though, that with responsibility, excuse me, with authority comes responsibility. Everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required. You know, in our church, you're either a forester, a school teacher, or married to one of them. Did you know that? That's, that's most of the people who go to our church. And I love listening to our foresters as they talk about the love and the care that they have for the land that they've been entrusted with. In fact, if you listen to them long enough, you might think they're talking about their land because they seek to be a good steward of that which has been entrusted to them. We're land managers, every one of us. We are managers of this earth. God has created this earth with systems that are self-perpetuating, and we are called to care for it. Now, we can go way too far on either side of that pendulum, can't we? We can say that it doesn't matter what we do to the environment, and I can just pour all the chemicals I want in Murder Creek. That's bad. Or we can go to the other extreme and say we can't have any development because we have to protect everything from any kind of detriment. Now, we can go in both extremes. But we all know, deep inside of us, that God cares for this creation. And we are to care for it as well. Well, God gave tasks to Adam and Eve, and therefore to us. Like a king gives instructions to his governor, like a king gives instruction to his uh, royal viceroy, so the Lord, when he gave authority to Adam and Eve, and therefore to us, uh, he gave us instructions. And we have two specific instructions here uh, found in verse 28. First we read, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now these are three words that mean the same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What does this mean? Well, it means that Adam and Eve were to have children. When you think about all the tasks that God called Adam and Eve to do, it was too big for two people, wasn't it? We'll see this in Genesis 2 where he calls them to tend and to keep the Garden of Eden. 
And God's design was that through their children and their children's children and so on and so forth, that the earth would be populated and there would be more people to exercise the dominion of God over the earth. Remember what God calls us to, He empowers us for. He'd already done that with Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to have children. But in order for that to happen, He'd already given them everything they needed. To Adam, He gave a male body and a male soul. And to Eve, He gave a female body and a female soul. And He made them complement each other physically and spiritually so that their union might lead to the begetting of children. All right, so how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Let's talk about some modern application because this is still very much in play, and these are terribly important priorities that we find in Scripture. One of the things that has happened in our society and as a result of the fall is that having children is not nearly as important to couples as it used to be. Now, let me say before we go any further, there, there are those who desire children who we've prayed for and the Lord has not blessed. Right? There are others that the Lord calls to be single, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But increasingly, more and more young married couples are choosing not to have children so they might enjoy a certain lifestyle without being encumbered by dealing with children. And so when we look at Genesis 1, at the first commands, the first commands given to humanity is what? Have children. If you look at the fertility rates across the board in America, we're actually now below the replacement rate for those who are born in America. The only way, the only reason that we're adding to our national population is actually through immigration. Did you know this? You look at what's happening in China with uh, the, the gutting of uh, their whole system of, uh, you know, for a long time you can only have one child. And you know what that's produced? Uh, a really old population with fewer and fewer people to take care of them. And now they're trying to, they're, they're sending, the government is sending direct text messages to mothers in China telling them to have more children. Did you know that? Uh, you know, when you get a, a, an instruction from the government on your text to have more children, I don't know if that's going to be terribly effective. Uh, it, there's a crisis in Europe for the same thing and in Japan. When a culture gets away from seeing children as a blessing and instead sees them as a hindrance, God calls us to be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Matthew 19, which we referenced earlier in the Mark version, um, Let the little children come unto me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children of heaven. Excuse me, kingdom of heaven. We live in a strange society in which we idolize children on the one hand, and let children run our lives as we uh, live our lives vicariously through them. And then on the other hand, we have devalued the life of children as well. Um, as we look at the abortion rate, as we look at um, the number of children who are being born out of wedlock, and, and, the, and the number of, of foster parents is, is an all-time low in Escambia County. Do we value children like God values children? But it's not, not just enough to multiply, be fruitful, to fill the earth. The lion's share of this equation is raising children up in the Lord, isn't it? Some of you grew up on farms. 
Uh, some of you may not have grown up on farms, but worked on farms. You know, having children on a farm historically was important. Why? Because it meant you had more hands to work. In fact, as I, I talked to Leon Hartley, uh, talk to Leon sometime uh, about his time growing up on the farm. And the things he did as a young child, modern parents would just lose their mind over, right? Um, there, there are more hands needed. But there are more hands needed not just in the world at large, but especially in the kingdom of God. That as we raise our children, we are to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's one of our uh, baptismal vows that parents take. That we wouldn't just raise them healthy. That we wouldn't just raise them to give them opportunities. Those are good things. But that we would raise them to love Jesus and His kingdom. Because the, the harvest is ripe. There are souls that need to be reached. And the normal way in which God blesses uh, a church and a community is through the blessing of families. That as we teach our children the doctrines of our holy religion, that they would be laborers for the kingdom, laborers for the vineyard. That we would begin to pray for our children that they might uh, multiply spiritually. That we would see them disciple their friends. That they would have a faith that is overflowing. That their friends and their teachers, and as they get older, their co-workers might see and ask, what is that? And to turn to the living God. That we might see the multiplication of Sunday school teachers and deacons and elders and nursery workers and missionaries and pastors and church administrators and evangelists, right? It would be faithful not just physically to multiply, but spiritually. Well, God created the universe in Genesis 1, and His work was completed at the day, end of day 6. But there is a, a new creation. If you're, if you're a believer in Christ, you are a new creation. You're a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come. This is the church. And the church was purchased, created, crafted, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And now He has entrusted to us the task of multiplying, of seeing others come to know Christ. Paul's going to use this similar kind of royal language in 2 Corinthians 5. where we read, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All right, so he gives two commands. The first is to multiply. The second is to have dominion and subdue the earth. Look again at 28. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You'll remember that when God created the world, we talked about um, how there's one verb that only speaks of God's creating in, in the Hebrews, barah. Only God barahs is to make out of nothing. But see, now that He has made all this amazing stuff, He calls us, causes us, calls us to, to make and to fashion and to organize and to craft and to build and to innovate and nurture and to keep and to guard and to cause to flourish. Y'all, and this is fun stuff. God has made you with the creative heart and mind. Even those who may not think you're creative, you are. Because you are made in the image of God, 
being creative might look different in everybody's situation. But God has called us to take what He has created and continue to organize and to build. He loves the upbuilding of, of societies, to start new structures. Um, think about this. Uh, when we take raw resources like pine trees and make them into power poles, that's part of subduing the earth. Taking what God has created and crafting it into something new. Or when we take iron and make them to, into iron plating like we do down at Grady, or pulp into paper, right? This was, this was wood. And God has given us the ability to figure out how to take wood and make it into paper. Or, or, or when we recondition rail cars at Frit Car. Or when we subdue the electrons, right? When you're working on your computer at the bank and keeping that thing going, or the employment office. Or when you take big concepts and teach them to young children, and we use pen and paper to draw up plans, we are doing the work of God's royal governors in subduing and having dominion over the earth. And we can have fun with that. We can have fun creating things. All right, modern day application. It means that work is good. And that's a really countercultural statement, isn't it? That work is good. Have you seen those shirts that says life is good? Have you seen those? I don't, I don't really know anything about that company, and I always wonder when I look at that. Uh, but maybe we should make some T-shirts that say, work is good. Uh, because it really is. God has created us for work. When did God create work? Was it before or after Adam and Eve's sin? It was before. Now, there are thorns and thistles. Those who like to garden, I can't garden, worth a lick. Uh, there are things that fight you, aren't there? There are weeds and other things that, you know, fungus and, I don't know, caterpillars. And, uh, it's hard to keep those things alive, isn't it? Right? But the work is good. But it's interesting because according to a Pew Research poll, only half of Americans are satisfied with their jobs. Only half. Do you have one of those jobs that you're not satisfied with? Do you have one of those jobs you just really don't like? That's a struggle, apparently, for half of America. And we're all, uh, we all struggle with having a good attitude towards even good work, even fun work. But work itself is a good thing. God has created us for work. And not only that, God calls us to work hard. You know, in Genesis 3 comes around and thorns and thistles pop up in the garden... That's not to say that that was the first time work was hard. You know, even with Adam and Eve's perfect bodies, they would have been tired at the end of the day, don't you think? Plowing and hoeing and planting, even when the ground does not fight against you, it's still hard. Working hard is a good thing. Somewhere along the way, we've equated hard with bad. I remember Hugh Fountain told me in a session meeting several years ago, and I had it on a sticky note on my desk for years, and it said, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. Um, there's very little in this world that's worth much of anything that we don't have to work hard for. Uh, whether it's uh, your work for vocation, or whether it's your marriage. You need to work hard at marriage. Good things take work, and great things take hard work. 
But third, as we think through a theology of work, there is another kind of work that God calls us to, and that's work for the kingdom. God calls us to pick up the shovel and get to work in building His church. The amazing thing is that He includes us in this task. He didn't have to. It is God's grace and it's God's gift to us. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. Or Ephesians 2, 10, For we are His worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The things that I love, I am more willing to work hard for. Do you find that true in your life? The things that I love, I find that it's a lot easier to work hard at. But when I examine what I love, I don't love Christ's kingdom like I should. I want that to grow. Because when your love for Jesus and His church and the reaching of the lost and the healing of wounds and coming alongside and doing the one-anothering of the Christian life, when we value those things deeply in our heart, the hard work becomes, it's still hard, but it becomes more of a delight. We can delight when the work is hard. I desire that the love of Christ would compel me and compel you to work hard in His kingdom, in His vineyard. Well, how do we land this plane? We started out saying that, God, that we are God's viceroys, His royal representatives. He has given us authority and ownership of this world and entrusted it to our care. He made us in His image and has given us what is needed, needed to carry out those tasks. He calls us to use our creativity to subdue the earth and work hard in our vocations, whether they're in an office building or on a farm or at a mill, at a school or at a computer. But the greatest task that He has given to us is the building up of Christ's kingdom as royal ambassadors, investing in the eternities of our neighbors, our friends, and our neighbors, excuse me, our, our, our family. What is amazing about the true story of Genesis 1 is that Adam and Eve would not follow these commands perfectly for very long. Instead, they would bring sin and shame and death and destruction and pain and evil into this world. But here's the thing. The king who had commissioned them as his royal viceroys, when they rebelled against the king, what did he do? There was judgment. There were consequences. He cursed the ground. There's a curse upon Adam and Eve. There's a curse upon work. There's also grace. Because he promised there would come one who would take care of the evil that we have done, who would pay for what we have done against the king. See, the same king who commissioned Adam and Eve is the same king who came, and he bled and he died for all the evil things that we have done. And that's terribly important news. That though he died, he rose on the third day, and he is the firstfruits of those who would be raised from the dead. And this means that if you have failed, and if you have sinned against your God, which you have, but you trust in Christ for salvation, then you too will get to enjoy living for all of eternity in the new heavens and new earth when Christ, our King, comes again 
And He finishes and He restores what was always meant to be. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank You for this great plan of redemption that You have sent Your Son, our King, uh, to redeem us. Lord, may we, out of that redemption, serve You well, our Lord and our King. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll conclude our service by standing and singing 560, uh, verses 1, 4, and 5, For the Beauty of the Earth. Let's stand and sing.